0: You know, if you are dependent, number one, on those who are remote from you and then number two, those who are remote from you are making decisions based on a different calculus than you do, you're in serious trouble.
1: Hi there and welcome to the Local Self-Reliance Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. My name is Lisa Gonzalez. The ability to reach farther across boundaries, land masses, and oceans has undoubtedly changed our civilization. As the global economy affects our day-to-day lives, how important is the concept of local self-reliance? Today, Stacy Mitchell, David Morris, and Chris Mitchell dig into the importance of policies that promote local self-reliance. Christopher Mitchell, director of the Telecommunications as Commons initiative at the Institute for Local Self-reliance, is an expert in municipal networks. He presents at conferences across the U.S. sharing his knowledge of community networks. Stacey Mitchell, no relation to Chris, is the director of the Community Scaled Economies Initiative at the Institute for Local Self Reliance. Stacey is an advisor to business groups, grassroots organizations, and policymakers interested in finding ways to curb economic consolidation and strengthen community rooted enterprise. David Morris is co founder and vice president of the Institute for Local Self Reliance. He currently directs our initiative on the public good. Over the years, David has acted as an advisor and consultant to large and small businesses and has worked with local, state, and national governments in the U.S. and abroad. David's writings have appeared on over 200 publications, which probably doesn't surprise you, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and the Journal of Commerce. The Self-Reliant Podcast is the Institute's latest experiment, and we encourage your ideas and your feedback. Here are Stacy, Chris, and David
2: what is the role of local self-reliance in the modern economy? And what I was getting at in thinking of that was basically to say, I think when you look back at the medieval city, local self-reliance, you think of course is necessary because they didn't have jet travel, they didn't have instant communication around the globe. So what I wanted to put to both of you is, why is that still necessary today? Or even if not necessary, what are the benefits of that approach today?
3: global travel and the ability to connect with people around the globe and and to receive news and information from everywhere instantly um, doesn't diminish uh, and in some way makes more important the role of geographic communities. Um, You know, many of the most important things that we depend upon, depend upon the, the quality of our geographic communities, whether it's the, the availability of, of jobs, uh, the quality of the water that comes out of your tap, um, your sense of, of connection and relationship to other people, you know, all derives from the place that you live.
0: I think that when we think about the medieval cities, we should remember that the medieval cities were born because of trade. The medieval cities were the marketplace, Uh, and so they they really were the the place that people from distances came to to bring their goods, and and buy their goods, and and ply their wares. And I think that today, we can think of the city in a a similar way, um, in that it, it makes rules. The city makes certainly the land use rules, and certainly the behavioral rules. Uh, that govern the people who live in the city and trade is increasingly uh, or, or communications are increasingly globalized and so at you know at the institute for local self-reliance we tend to 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 think of the future as a global village and a global villages and that means that it's a global village which is more familiar to People, because we are in an internet communication, information-based way, globalized, inherently globalized. But we also need to think of ourselves as a global villages. In that, a significant amount of the wealth that we generate, especially physical wealth that we generate, can come internal to our own borders. And as Stacy says, uh, the uh, the, uh, the locality, the community, is where we live. It's where we. Work is where we play. It's where we reach out for for help. It's where we practice mutual aid. And uh, as any mayor of a city knows, the city is where the rubber meets the road. The the city is the is the place where the rules finally uh, finally affect us personally and intimately.
2: So what you're saying is basically. It's more important to be locally self-reliant in eras as we become more able to move about and more able to trade and things like that. Um, which is interesting. And and I'm, what I'd like to tease out, I think, is some of the specific advantages. Um, and then we'll come back and look at some of the disadvantages of not being locally self-reliant. So, uh, Stacy, in, in your work, what are some of the key advantages of, of having this uh, local self-reliant approach to policy and to, to organizing a community?
3: Well, I think that the, um, you know, that if you... Uh... If you create the kinds of policies in your community that support more of a locally scaled and locally oriented economy, you end up with a much greater diversity of jobs and opportunities. You also end up with a community that's more resilient in times of distress and disaster because you have a community that has the the capacity has the resources, control of the
2: resources,
3: uh, and, and therefore can marshal those resources to deal with whatever the looming challenge or problem is.
2: What are some of those policies?
3: Well, I think uh, David mentioned land use rules um, is obviously a, a key one. Um,
2: so if you're just an average citizen, let me just, I'm just going to interrupt you mm-hmm. occasionally, unfortunately. Um, what, what is a land use rule in particular?
3: Yeah. So, you know, every city or most cities uh, and, and small towns and, and counties have planning policies that uh, determine um, how land can be used and the nature uh, and structure of building that, that can happen on that land. Um, so it's it's how the physical environment is governed um, and how it's allowed to develop, um, and the choices that communities make. Uh, you know, about those rules have a great influence on the kind of of economy, particularly the sort of local retail economy and the streetscape um, that's produced. Um, If you have rules that support um, and mandate uh, a a mixture of uses, multi-story buildings, uh, streets that are uh, uh, walkable and have a certain degree of density, um, and where the, the the spaces that are created are, are smaller scale and more more of a mix um, you create the kind of habitat that's really good for locally owned businesses whereas if you um, if you allow for kind of large-scale sprawl you know big auto oriented development on the outskirts uh, single-story buildings um uh, for various reasons, that type of environment is much more suitable uh, and advantageous to uh, big box retailers and other corporations. Um, so land use rules are important and there 's a lot that you can do through your planning and land use to uh, more um, to finely control um, the kinds of businesses that are allowed and on on what terms uh, into your community you know economic impact is a big part of of what communities can look at in the context of planning um, you know I think the other kinds of, of rules from from a local level at any rate you know, have to do with how you how you spend your economic development resources um, and and what what the orientation um, there is. Um, It can also get into things like uh, the degree to which your regulatory environment is, um, is calibrated, um, to be, to accommodate the varied needs of, of local businesses versus a kind of standardized national approach. Um, there are various things that cities can do around local banking and to support um, uh, local agriculture and local food systems as well.
2: Now, David, what are some of the rules that you think of when we talk about whether we're encouraging uh, a local self-reliance or uh, dependence on um, those outside the community?
0: A city can plan coherently and comprehensively. It can track the flow of the resources through its borders and try to maximize uh, the generation of, of wealth internal to itself. And it can, it can and I think Stacy's some of the rules that Stacy was talking about are ways in which a, a city can take a dollar that you have in your pocket and try to multiply it as much as possible before it leaves uh, the local economy.
2: What does that mean, to multiply a dollar in your pocket?
0: Well, if you if you uh, you know take a, a dollar and you and you spend it on a big box retail store, uh, a far smaller fraction of that money stays in the local economy than if you spend it on a locally owned independent retail store. Uh, for I think obvious reasons, uh, that your centralized store will have centralized accounting that's far away, centralized legal uh, that's far away. The profits are taken out of the community, you know, and so forth. Uh, and I, so I think that that's. That's an example, but another example would be in terms of energy. Uh, about 90 cents on the dollar that you spend on energy that is either electricity or, or, uh, or gasoline or, or heating uh, or natural gas uh, will leave the community. Um, but if you take that and you begin to uh, have uh, solar, for example, or if you have district heating that relies on, uh, on uh, sort of waste wood from the cutting down of trees and trees that die uh, normally and naturally – uh, then that money stays in the local economy uh, as well. Uh, and I think that we try to approach a city as if it were a nation with the understanding that nations are not our target. They're not self-sufficient, but they are self-conscious. Uh, and they do try to maximize the, the the wealth that's generated internal to their borders. Uh, cities have uh, a large public works departments and, and, and you know when, when anybody uh, decides that a city is poor and it can't afford something think of the enormous amounts of money uh, that even modest sized cities uh, have spent to build sports stadiums that are often uh, 300, 400, 500, 800 million dollars in public money uh, so cities do have the, the, the ability uh, to borrow money and to invest uh, and you know in your own work in terms of telecommunications you know, there are 150 cities right now that have decided that just as the roads were the the, uh, the foundation of the transportation systems of the past and cities built the roads and they own the roads, uh, the telecommunications networks will be the, the highways, if you will, of the future. And there's a number of, of cities that are now trying to do the same that is laying in the fiber and, and they will own it and they will then be able to uh, to make the rules of the road. Uh, And those cities that are doing that also find out uh, that the, that the money is staying in the local economy more. uh, And then also that the people of that city through their elected officials can in fact have an influence over the telecommunications uh, access to the, to the network and what the network provides them. Whereas right now with a, with a Comcast or or an AT&T, you don't have that kind of uh, access. So a city really does have a, significant amount of authority. It doesn't have nearly as much authority or or resource capability as we'd like it to have.
2: When you talk about a modern city generating its power and distributing that through the city through a district energy system, people might scoff a little bit, um, but you didn't mention it, but that's my city, St. Paul, um, with the district energy system that uh, I know that you were involved with back uh, when it went from being a theory to being a real thing. But uh, I want people to be aware that it's not just an idea, it's something that really exists. And
0: people should know that and the Institute was was involved in the setting up of the district energy system in St. Paul in the early 1980s. And it's a, it's a very interesting history because you have a downtown, and the downtown is served by the natural gas company and by the electric company. Uh, and what uh, St. Paul did was to create a, uh, a new entity that could provide heat, centralized heat if you will through a a network of pipes to the buildings but of course utilities uh, have their franchise uh, agreement in those areas and so there were several years in which one had to fight for just the authority uh, to do that and then finally it was done and the heating system was set up in the nineteen eighties and then in the early nineteen nineties the federal government banned chlorofluorocarbons uh, which are the basis for cooling systems, and that meant that large buildings, when they had to recharge their systems, it became very expensive for them to 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 uh, to uh, to buy the the, uh, the the next iteration of chemicals uh, for those systems, and so the district uh, heating system became a district heating and cooling system, uh, and then in the early two thousands, uh, the the system which was then operated on coal. Began to realize that there were massive amounts of uh, of wood that was available in the pruning of the trees every year, uh, and uh, at the present time, uh, it gets seventy five percent of its fuel uh, from those, from uh, from biomass, uh, and it serves about eighty percent of downtown St. Paul. And just in the last couple of years, it has created a consulting arm in which it is consulting cities in the rest of the country on their building their own district energy systems so that's all over a 30-year period Uh, but it started with them them having to put a stake in the ground and say we claim the authority to do this in this small part of the city
2: so we've done a good job of covering a few of the benefits of of having uh, your your economy being set up in a way that's locally self-reliant Stacy I want to ask you specifically some of the work you've done for the disadvantages of not doing that. And in particular, I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, what happens when Walmart creates a job or Amazon creates a job. Uh, you've done some some really good research into how that impacts um, uh, others in the community.
3: We have three really daunting challenges in front of us as a society. I mean, one is that we have growing numbers of people who are stuck in unstable Poverty level wage jobs. Um, we have the collapse of the environmental systems that we all depend on, um, and we have the takeover of government by large corporate interests, particularly the federal government, but also extending down to the state and sometimes even the local level. Um, you know, and that those things all, in many ways, I think, flow from the concentration of, of economic power, and you see it. You know Walmart most clearly is is an example of this um, as a company that now captures uh, one quarter of the dollars that Americans spend on groceries and thus, you know, has a controlling stake really in how food is produced and distributed nationally um and is a dominant retailer of many of of the the household goods that we that we depend on. Um, you know, Walmart, is um, much more of a of an extractive mechanism than it is a, a wealth building mechanism. So when it comes into a community. Um, what we see is that the number of, of jobs actually declines. So, you know, many, many cities sort of think, oh, we're going to get a Walmart store or a Target store for that matter. Um, and that's going to create you know, hundreds of new jobs. Um, but the reality, and, and studies have shown this repeatedly, is that for every new uh, retail job created by one of these stores, about one and a half existing retail jobs is lost. And that's just looking at the, at the retail Um, Jobs. When you begin to look beyond that and you think about the fact that a single Walmart store um, disrupts and pushes out of business dozens of locally owned uh, stores, um, so there are all of those sort of ownership jobs, if you will, that are lost. And then you begin to think about the multiplier effects. Um, $0.85 cents of every dollar you spend at a Walmart or a Target just leaves your community, um, and that's not true with a locally owned retail store. A lot of that dollar stays local because that business is buying goods and services from other local businesses. It's getting its printing done locally. It's banking at the local bank. Uh, it's hiring a local accountant and so on and helping to support this this web of, of, of interconnected and predominantly middle-income jobs in the community. Um you know, I think shifting away from the Walmart economy and moving to a more locally owned and locally focused economy is really critical um, part of addressing the jobs crisis that we face and the, and the, and the rise of low wage work. Um, but it's also, uh, you know, critical for the other two problems. One is, is, you know, um, regaining democratic control of our government by reducing the power and size of corporations. And then, and then the last one, which we haven't talked about much so far in this conversation is really the ecological crisis and the need, I think, for us to develop an economy that is not this sort of global one size fits all giant production Global distribution, but rather is much more uh, fine grained and attuned to the particular resource constraints and opportunities within uh, a particular location. And that is that you know the citizens of of Portland, Maine, and those of Tucson, Arizona, um, you have very radically different environments in the in the way that we begin to meet our needs um, in the future if we're going to to um, you know sort of avert. Um, The problems of climate change are going to have to really be dependent on being much more oriented to those particular constraints and resources.
2: One of the things that I wanted to pitch in, I appreciate, David, you mentioning uh, the telecom work. Uh, I think one of the most obvious examples today of not being locally self-reliant is depending on a distant cable or DSL company. Um, Typically, you have connections that aren't as good as those who uh, have built their own networks. Um, You have connections that are more expensive. We have all the same problems in terms of um, resources leaving the community when you pay your bill to Time Warner Cable rather than to a, a local ISP. Um, and there's all kinds of reliability issues because, you know, a company from that's headquartered in Philadelphia or New York City, uh, they're just not as interested in, in, in spending that extra money to make sure that there's a redundant connections and things like that to make sure that if something goes wrong, area businesses will still be connected, that the police will still be connected. Um, the worst example of this is up in a rural community in northeastern Minnesota where when a single fiber line was cut, that was owned by um, Quest, which is now CenturyLink. Uh, everyone in two counties lost all of their telecommunications. That meant banks could not work, uh, the ATMs didn't work, businesses couldn't process credit card transactions. Uh, People could not call 911. Uh, It was um, just a a total disaster. And we literally had Border Patrol on the border with Canada using Canadian systems to be able to relay messages back to uh, Washington, D.C. When it comes down to telecommunications, we we see all kinds of problems when one is not uh, locally self-reliant.
0: What you just said with telecommunications and what Stacy talked about in terms of the the big box is that, you know, if you are dependent, number one, on those who are remote from you, and then number two, those who are remote from you are making decisions based on a different calculus than you do, you're in serious trouble. Now, people are, in the case of the federal government, that's something that's remote from us. Uh, We are penalized for that remoteness. Uh, and that moves us to a one-size-fits-all type of public policy. When it comes to the WalMarts or the Comcast's or the Standard Oils uh, of the uh, you know of the world, they are not only remote from us, but they're driven by uh, by a, a profit-making calculus. You know, one of the things about about relying on a sort of a homegrown economy and one where you have a predominance of, of local ownership is that the people who own the the local businesses uh, tend to live in the local community they tend to pay the local taxes and their kids go to the local schools and they care about the local police and 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 you know they are rooted uh, in the community and and as such they become active participants in in, in figuring out how to do things best within the community uh, if you have a branch store manager who is often underpaid uh, and is one of, you know, a thousand different stores in, in some large chain. And that chain you know, doesn't really care about the quality of the local schools or the quality of the local streets, except in as much as it might affect uh, their walk in commerce.
2: Thank you, Stacey Mitchell, director of our Community Scaled Economy Initiative, and David Morris, the director of the Defending the Public Good Initiative.
0: Thank you very much, Chris.
1: Thanks, Chris. That was Chris Mitchell, Stacey Mitchell, and David Morris from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. As we mentioned at the start of the program, we're interested in your ideas. If there are guests you'd like us to interview or topics you think we should cover, please email us at info@ilsr.org. We want to thank Fit and the Conniptions for their song, Many, Many, licensed using Creative Commons. Thank you for listening to the Self-Reliance Podcast. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Have a great day.